Greetings and welcome to another different church podcast. My name is Jarrett and I hope you are having an awesome day. I'm recording this at 11.57 p.m. on a Sunday night and today was a really great day. It was our uh, first day back at the Opera, which is our building where we hold our services uh, in uh, about three weeks. We were out for a couple weeks for Easter and um, there, we were getting some repairs done and so we had like a beach day and it was really cool. Today kind of felt like, I don't know, it felt like we had been gone longer than uh, that. It, it felt like a little mini homecoming. Uh, it was really cool. A lot of new people found us today. I think we probably had like new, um, like 10 new people there today uh, plus uh, about four or five more watching online and talking about coming um, next week. So uh, shout out to anybody listening to this who it was a new person at any point. Um, it really just makes what we're doing feel awesome. Uh, you probably are aware uh, a church like ours, uh, it didn't feel like it was going to be a slam dunk when we launched it. Like we were uh, confident that people would be interested and we were hopeful, but you know, there's always that chance in the back of your mind that it might not work out. And just to see people really excited about what we're doing is amazing. So thank you. Um, you're awesome. Thank you as always for listening. If you haven't connected with us, we would love to meet up virtually go to diff.church on your phone or computer. And from there you can sign up to be a part of our mailing list. Uh, you can donate, you can connect, you can give us feedback. You can give us prayer requests. We would just really love to hear from you if you are out there listening and thank you so much for supporting what we do. Okay. Let's jump straight to Hannah's message, which I am calling give it away now. And let's start with a question. You guys ready to talk about the Bible? We're just going to jump right in. I don't have a fancy intro. We're just going to put the scripture on the screen and read it. Um, this is from Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 35. It says, All the believers were united in heart and mind, and they felt that what they had was not their own, so they shared everything they had. The apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great blessing was among them all. And there were no needy people among them, because those who owned land or houses would sell them, and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. Isn't that nice? <laughs> this is a passage that actually pops up in the lectionary. We often follow the lectionary at different church, meaning there's just like a set of texts in the Bible that the church, like millions of churches around the world just use those verses and they talk about them. So there's a couple good things about this. One, we get to talk about passages that we would normally skip. <laughs> and two, it, gets, it helps me to be creative because it often brings up topics that normally we would be like, well, do we really need to talk about that? Let's just talk about something that makes us feel good instead. So I feel like this passage is kind of playing the nostalgia game, like just the good old days in church. If you've ever been part of a church that like older people are kind of reminiscing, they're like, oh, things back in the day, churches were full. The choir was amazing. Sunday school was full of children learning about the gospel. And what? The world is going to hell in a handbasket now because Sunday school doesn't exist and we just don't know what's happening. And everyone in attendance was so unified and so happy together. So happy together. And everyone was just delighted and it was the good old days that we miss. We just long for them. And that doesn't really reflect reality. We know this, right? It sounds the same to me in this passage. So it says, all the believers were united in heart and mind. And they shared everything they had, 
and there was no needy people among them. Isn't that lovely? If you're like a fan of Saturday Night Live, I feel like a quoting church lady. Like, isn't that special? <laughs> it doesn't sound like any church group I have ever heard of or been a part of. Um, even if we leave aside like the willingness of people to share and give up their resources, the claim that the entire community was united in heart and mind seems incredible to me. I don't know any human community where that exists. Like, give me any group of people, no matter how much they love each other, no matter how committed to each other and to God they are, and they will absolutely not be united. <laughs> there will be differences of opinion, differences of belief, different ideas of where resources should be allocated, different priorities. People are involved, so there will be hurt feelings at some point. Um, there will be misunderstandings. Some people may feel, may feel neglected, and some people may feel smothered by the same amount of attention. Some people will be like, why didn't you text me? No one in the church loves me. And some people will be like, you texted me, ugh. <laughs> I was just living my life. I'm like, what's well, the same? You're getting the same amount. Whenever you get people together, there's going to be different personalities. People are going to butt heads. It's just a fact. And so the question we're going to think about today, how is it even possible that the believers were united in heart and mind? Is it even possible? And should this unity and this selling of every single thing you own and giving it to the church, should that be what the modern church is striving towards? And here's why I say the lectionary enables us to uh, not skip passages that we want to, um, because this is all about resources and sharing, right? We don't like to share. You take any kid, and you're like, well, that kid wants to turn with the truck. Well, you have to share. And what's their first response? No. No. <laughs> what's wrong with you? And I mean, we, we try to teach kids, you know, you have to share. That's nice to share. We don't share. Like, if I were just working on my computer, just doing something, and then Jarrett came to me and was like, hey, I know you're in the middle of something, but um, Brie needs to use that computer, so you have to share. I would be like, no, <laughs> what's wrong with you? <laughs> and Jarrett would be like, well, I said you have to share, so I'm taking it. That's what we do to kids. <laughs> we're taking it, you have to share. We don't like it. It's very anti who we are. So we're just going to think through it together just like we think through all kinds of interesting interpretation challenges in the Bible. So there's some question in this passage about whether the selling of someone's possessions was like compulsory, like you had to do it to belong to the community. So there was a sect in Qumran, which is like a little desert mountain outside of Jerusalem, where there was a sect of Jewish zealots. And they, you, you may know them because they're famous for housing the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are like some of the oldest manuscripts of the Bible that we have. But to belong to that community, you had to sell everything you owned you couldn't have any possessions, nothing that was yours. You just had to go join, kind of like a monastery. Was this what the church community was like? Was it required? I feel like our text kind of suggests it wasn't required, but it was the norm. So in the next chapter, if you keep reading in Acts, Ananias and Sapphira, they have a piece of property, they sell it, they bring the proceeds to Peter. He's an apostle. And then they're like, we sold this property. Here is all of the money we got for it. And then that was a lie. So Peter calls him out on it. He's like, you lied. And then they both drop dead, which is crazy. That's a crazy story. Um, and Peter tells him, you know, you were free to do whatever you wanted with this property. Why did you come here and tell me this was the whole amount when it wasn't? Why did you lie? And I always, I'm always thinking, like I've heard this passage, this is why you don't lie. What, because you could die? <laughs> That's a terrible interpretation. I want to know why did he feel like he had to lie? Was it... He, was he trying to demonstrate how wonderful and good he was? 
or like trying to perform in a sense and just wow everybody in the room with my massive generosity. I sold this piece of property and now the church shall be funded. Everyone bowed to me. Was that what was going on? Was there some kind of external pressure that if you really wanted to belong and you had some kind of resources that you had to give it up so that people felt like you were being appropriate? Was it some combination of the two? I don't know. There's a few different models of stewardship in the Old Testament, and stewardship is like a fancy church word for what do you do with the money? So how do we take care of our money and our possessions and our life in a way that honors God? So all the various stewardship models, there's a bunch of them in the Old Testament, they all start with the same premise. And the premise is everything belongs to God already. So we are called to be good caretakers of whatever God has given us, however much God has given us, while we're on the earth but it's not actually ours. Everything belongs to God. And this is not in the Bible, but if you've heard the song like, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, it's basically the premise. So there's a few different models. One of the models you see in the Old Testament is the first fruits model, meaning if you had flocks and vineyards and fields and everything, your first fruits, you would bring those and give them to God. So the first babies from your flock of sheep, the first grain from your grain harvest, this was actually an act of deep faith. We're like, oh yeah, well, I had a couple babies, we'd just give the lambs to the church, whatever. <laughs> Who cares? Well, what if there was a drought and you didn't get a second harvest? What if some disease struck your flock and you didn't get any more lambs? This was an, a, a radical act of faith to be like, I don't know what's coming next, but I'm still gonna give something to God. And they didn't give God leftovers. They gave God the highest quality, the best, the first priority. So that's one model. Another model is the gleaning model. So if you owned, like say, a giant grain field and grain was your business, that's what you did, you would not harvest the margins of the land. So you would just go threshing. They didn't have like machines, so they would do this, I assume, with whatever that thing is called. That's like the Grim Reaper carries it. <laughs> so they would do that, but they wouldn't go all the way to the edge of the field. And if when they were doing that, they dropped some, they would leave it there. Why? Because there were people who didn't have farms. There are people who didn't have resources, and they could come behind and pick stuff up and have something to eat. It was the sacrifice of maximum profit for the sake of people who didn't have a way to provide them for themselves. And we see this in the story of Ruth in the Old Testament. So Ruth is like going behind the workers in the field of Boaz, who she eventually marries, and picking up what's left over so that she and her stepmom, Naomi, could have something to eat because they didn't have anything. So that's another model. Another model, you probably have heard of this one, is the model of tithe. So tithe typically means one-tenth, although throughout the Old Testament, sometimes it means different percentages. It's not always 10%. There were also sometimes different requirements for poor people and rich people. Um, tithe didn't always involve money. Sometimes it involved possessions or, again, your flocks or your grain or your harvest. Could be interchangeable kind of with the first fruits model, but generally understood. The tithe model means one-tenth of your proceeds you go to God. And this model of like proportional giving is the most enduring, especially in the modern church, because we don't have farms. If you do have a farm, like please do not bring me a baby cow. <laughs> I do not know what to do with that. <laughs> that will not help different church at all. <laughs> do not bring me a basket of like grain and be like, here you go, you can grind this and make your own bread. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> So that's like the most enduring model because we have like a money-based system and not a goods-based system. And then there's another model that's holy poverty. Now, very few people did this. 
This is like what we think of the monks or the sect at Qumran. You sell every single thing you own, you give all the proceeds to the poor, and you live on as little as possible or nothing for the rest of your life. Shockingly, that one didn't take off. <laughs> but many monastic traditions follow this still to this day. If you join a monastic community, you don't have anything that really belongs to you. You may have a few things like books or something, but you don't have all the stuff that we like. So all these different models. And in Acts 4.34, we find like a conglomeration of these models based on Deuteronomy. So the reason that this itty-bitty church found it necessary to hold all things in common is because their primary concern was that there shouldn't be anyone in their community who had needs that were unmet. It says there were needy, no needing people because anyone who owned houses or land, they sold them, they brought the money to the apostles to give to those in need. This is actually an allusion to Deuteronomy, chapter 15, which is all about sharing of possessions and sharing of belongings. And Deuteronomy 15, 4 says, when Yahweh blesses you, Yahweh is the name of God, when Yahweh blesses you in your land, there will be no needy person among you. So Luke, who's writing Acts, is actually arguing while saying this verses that we have today, Luke is arguing that the new community of Jesus has heard the voice of the prophet in Deuteronomy and is making certain that there's no needy people. He's saying this is a fulfillment of prophecy. We're arguing that because Jesus came and died and res was resurrected and now we have this community of faith following Jesus, this is why this is happening. Because long ago, 700 years ago, it was promised in Deuteronomy. And that's why we're doing this. Now, we might admire this radical practice <laughs> that the tiny church was doing, but we might also be concerned about their short-sighted economic vision. Um, the way that they handled money very certainly contributed to hard times down the line. They required a bailout, essentially, from the church in Antioch, which had lots of money. Paul writes this, actually, to the Romans, in the book of Romans, in chapter 15. <laughs> I didn't write that in my notes. I just have the verse. Uh, it's, he says, he's talking to the Romans. He said, before I come, I have to go to Jerusalem to give a gift to the believers there. For you see, the believers in Macedonia and Achaia have eagerly taken up an offering for the poor among the believers in Jerusalem. They were glad to do this because they felt they owe them a real debt. Since the Gentiles receive the spiritual blessings of the good news from the believers in Jerusalem, they feel the least they can do in return is help them financially. Pray that they'll be willing to accept the donation I'm taking. And then by the will of God, I'll be able to come to you with a joyful heart. We'll be an encouragement to each other. And may God, who gives us peace, be with you all, et cetera, et cetera. Now, Paul's requesting money from the Roman church, not for himself, for the church in Jerusalem. Why would they need money? Because they sold everything. <laughs> they sold all their properties and all their businesses and pulled all their money, and there's no ongoing stream of revenue. Um, and following this, they had a famine. And then following that, there was intense persecution from the Israelites, the regular Jews in Jerusalem, who did not like this little sect happening. And they were in dire need, right? And we can't be like, oh, what a stupid church. Like, why would you not have any way to provide for yourself? Because they thought Jesus was coming back instantly. Jesus was like, I will, I am, will soon come back and get you. And they were like, well, probably that means in like a month. So who needs a savings account? <laughs> we can't blame them for this. This actually happened again, probably multiple times in church history, but one specific instance at the early 1900s. <laughs> I 
you know, just like 100 years ago. Um, there was the Pentecostal movement took off in America, and people were speaking in tongues, and they were prophesying, and they were laying out on the floor, and like, I'm Pentecostal, so, you know, that's my faith tradition. And all these people were like, oh my gosh, these spiritual blessings are happening, everything is amazing. That means the end time is here, which means Jesus is coming back any second, which means we should sell everything we have and just go live on the mission field. And they did. And then guess what? We're still here. So it's, it's not just this tiny church in Jerusalem that had this problem of, oh, well, we don't need to plan for the future. We don't need to have any way to provide for ourselves. We don't need to have any way to take care of ourselves. This has happened throughout church history. People are like, they, they experience something. They're like, oh, Jesus is coming immediately. And so they get rid of everything that could sustain them. And then they don't have anything. And then they're like, oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> That's not what I thought was going to happen. So Paul, as part of his regular teaching to the Gentiles, those were just non-Jewish people, um, he was telling everyone, don't sell everything and put it in the common purse. He's saying, look after your physical needs, look after your financial needs of the whole community from within the community. So some people need to continue to own houses because you need to have a place to sleep. And in that, in that scenario, some people needed to continue to own houses because it was the only place they could meet. If the one person who owned a big house in their community sold it, where was the church going to meet? Paul was like, don't do that. Keep your house. <laughs> Keep your house and share it with others. So some people needed to continue to own businesses so that they could continue to, like, there had to be this continual investing in the community and in yourself. Now, the goal was the same. The family of faith needs to be taken care of. But the practice is a little bit different. And Paul, it could have been very easy for him to be like, we don't need to help those Christians in Jerusalem. Because they were mostly made up of Jews. It was a little messianic community. There weren't any Gentiles, hardly at all in there. And they might not want to accept some charity money from people that they did. There's clearly documented in Acts, headbutt. Like, Paul's entire purpose for writing the book of Romans is to say, Jews and Gentiles are the same in Christ Jesus. You have the same access. You have the same family. You have the same belonging. The gospel is the same for you. Stop trying to one-up each other. Okay? That's his whole message. <laughs> and so it's, it's entirely possible that this little Jewish community wouldn't even want to take the money that he's bringing to them. And think about this. Paul's saying, I have this sum of money. I'm going to take it to them. And we're like, oh, yes. How easy for him. No. <laughs> we have banks and like online transfers, and I can like Venmo you. No, Paul had to literally carry the money on his person while he walked on foot from like Greece to Israel. Why do you think highway robbers were so popular? <laughs> this is a very dangerous mission that he's taking on with a chance that they wouldn't even want to talk to him. Because at the core of gospel is God's generous love for everybody, right? Even people who are in active opposition. Even if we think we're right in seeing other people as wrong. We're like, we got it, they don't, end of story. They still might be the very people we ought to be helping. And so Paul's like, please pray for me. <laughs> we read it like, when Paul's like, yes, may God bless us and we will be together again. What a wonderful, and Paul, I feel like this is what Paul's saying. Please pray for me, y'all. These people, <laughs> I'm undertaking this terrible journey, and I'm glad to do it, okay? <laughs> but I don't know how they're going to receive me, so like, just pray. Pray, church. 
And all these things together combine to give us this much more nuanced perspective of what's going on in this little community in Jerusalem. We can see down the road the whole story, like their economic model didn't really work out in the long term. But that doesn't mean it wasn't beautiful, right? How much faith and commitment did they have to have towards each other to even try it in the first place? We know from earlier in Acts that this tiny little community was made up of many different people. There were rich people, poor people, local people, foreigner people, men, women, old, young, religious, not so religious, privileged people, oppressed people. And this whole totally weird, unlikely group come together around one central point, which is Jesus. That does not mean they did not have conflict. If you read the whole book of Acts, not just our tiny passage, there's actually a lot of conflict. <laughs> They're constantly getting in arguments. But they were open to each other. They're open with each other. They held all things in common. They tried to do the difficult work of getting past what divided them. Which, it kind of seems unfair, right? Being the church seems to be very costly for people who are rich and privileged. And it was a great benefit for people who were needy and oppressed. It doesn't seem like a great outreach strategy, right? Like Jesus' message, come and die. Take up your cross and follow me. We're like, oh, yes, what a beautiful church thing to say. Oh, no. No. Do you want to be crucified? That's horrible. <laughs> this church community is like, yeah, we're, I know you're different than me, but come join and, and have a concrete way of showing that you care about this community. And no doubt, this practical, this radical openness towards each other drove a lot of people away. That's why it was such a small community. Because it's a polarizing message, right? It looks kind of crazy. But the people who bought into it, they bought into a transformation of their heart and soul. Because their common ownership's not forced on them by church leadership. It has roots in their own hearts. Saying, we're all different. We're all, we don't know how to work this. We don't know if it's going to work. Jesus said he's coming back, but he's not back yet. So probably tomorrow. We've got to figure out some way to live with each other until then. And right now, I see that there are people who don't have food. So how do we fix this problem? In our most generous interpretation of these verses, we can see that this little faith community loved each other, and they took care of each other. And why? Because they all grew up in a society where the family unit was where you got your support. Well, guess what happens when you follow Jesus? Your family unit might kick you out. And maybe some of you have experiences with this. Maybe not because of following Jesus, or maybe so, maybe for something else in your life, where your family unit is not where you can find support anymore. And so they had to turn to their faith community because there wasn't anywhere else to go. Their faith community had to become their new family. And for this little tiny community, they found their unity. It found an actual manifestation in sharing their possessions, which is remarkable because we find a great deal of comfort in our possessions. I know I do. I just like to have them. Like, I crochet, because I'm an old lady. So I have like half a closet full of yarn. Am I ever gonna use it all? Probably not. But I like to have it. I like to just open my closet sometimes and like pull it all out and touch it and just be like, oh, it's so nice. <laughs> someday, someday you're gonna be a sweater and I just, ha I like to have it. And we do this, I mean, we do this with all kinds of stuff, right? We do it with shoes and, I mean, we used to do it with CDs and DVDs and stuff, but. <laughs> now we have digital libraries. Like, whatever your thing is, we just like to have it. Especially if there were any kind of lack in your life. 
Like I remember, like for me growing up, we didn't have a lot of money. So we like, I shopped at thrift stores. And so when I started making my own money, my fabulous $5 an hour that I made at Chick-fil-A when I was 16, (laughs) I started buying my own stuff and it was bad quality stuff, but I wanted a lot of it. I wanted my closet. I didn't even wear half the stuff probably more than that. But I wanted to have it because I didn't have it before and it made me feel better and safer to have all the options even if I didn't use them. We like our stuff. So it's a miracle when we think about this little faith community, it's a miracle that these early Christians, their experience is not one of God just opening the heavens and stuffing their pockets with gold. It's a miracle of community, of people actually sharing both wealth and poverty together. So no one is truly poor. And I'm almost done, so the band can come back. It's a miracle of generosity, like this human generosity that was inspired by divine generosity. And we get so caught up, we're like, well, how much should we be like the early church? We gotta have a Romans 5 model for the church. We gotta have the 10 steps on how we can follow to make sure we got the faith community right and we're doing it the right way the way the Bible says. Should we base our entire church practice on a few verses in Acts? No, (laughs) probably not. Should we just overanalyze what they've done and apply it to our situation and then just call out everyone and be like, well, if you're not selling everything you own and giving it to the common person, are you really Christians? Which we like, that's a ridiculous thing to say, but we do it with all kinds of stuff. We get so caught up in this stuff. And honestly, love is so simple. Human generosity is so simple. If, this is the generosity model, right? If you have more than you need, share. I mean, this can be applied to money, of course, but also what about time? What about relationships? What about space in your home? What about emotional bandwidth? What if you have all the spoons and someone else has no spoons? If you have more than you need, share. Like for example, I time, there's no time in my life at all. Currently I have four month old and it's just, I, I feel like I just barely, there's like, I got to, I got to crochet for half an hour yesterday. It was like the most time I have sat just doing something I wanted to do in months. I don't time is not a resource I have to give anyone right now, but my mom has some time And so she's been coming over to help me and she's sharing her time with me because she has more than she needs right now. And it's lifted such a weight off my shoulders to be able to go, here, what do you have more of than you need? And I'm not saying like, there's never a point where you need to be generous or give to God or give to other people or show up for your faith community or your family or your friends out of when you only have enough. Right? Just because I have, I'm just making it with time does not mean I never make space for other people. Like sometimes people are gonna need me to say, I, I don't have any time, but you're more valuable to me. Sometimes we have to step out like that for God. We have to be like, it's all God's anyways. All my time, all my money, all my resources, everything is God's, so I have to share it because God has been so generous with me. Mm-hmm. But generally, to be generous, all we have to do is go, where do I have more than I need and how can I help someone else? If you have more than you need of anything, share it. If you're in community with others, care for each other. 
If you've done wrong, say sorry. If you've enabled injustice, repair the situation. Love is a lot more simple than we give it credit for. It's a lot harder. I'm not saying love is easy. I'm saying it's simple. It's hard because we have to show up. And sometimes we have to be like, the most loving thing for me to do is to be honest, and that's hard. <laughs> the most loving thing for me to do is to say no to myself, and that's hard. The most loving thing to do is to make space for someone else, and that's hard. The most loving thing to do may not to be to argue, <laughs> and that's hard. But it's simple. Because God says, I look at you. Look at you wonderful, beautiful creations. I have so much to give you. Just take it. And then we take that from God and we go, wow, this is what it feels like to be accepted. This is what it feels like to be affirmed. This is what it feels like to be whole and complete and valued. Let me give some of that to someone else. So if you have more than you need, share it. That wasn't so bad, right? Everybody's still okay? I know it was like a whole sermon on money and people are normally like, no. <laughs> Don't, no, no, no. <laughs> We're fine. It's fine. The whole Bible is full of interesting interpretation challenges and we get to do them together because this is what faith is. This is what community is. We get to do it together. So we have two more songs and then I'll come back and give you a benediction. So I just invite you to stand if you would like to and we'll sing together.